0: chapter twenty three of a woman's War by warwick deeping this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty three a march wind blew the dust and dead leaves in eddies through the breadth of castle gate as dr steel's brougham drew up before the timbered front of a jacobean house the mellow building with its carved barge boards and great sweeping gables bore the date of sixteen seventeen and still carried a weather-worn sign swinging on an iron bracket for the last fifty years the ground floor had been used as a grocery shop a dim rambling cavern of a place fragrant with the scent of coffee and spices the proprietor mr isaac mainprice a very superior tradesman who dabbled in archaeology had refrained from gilt lettering above the door nor did the quaint leaded windows glare with advertisements whisky bottles and dutch cheeses every one within ten miles of roxton knew mr mainprice his prosperity did not need to be flaunted upon his windows good day madam terribly windy permit me mrs betty had swept across the pavement in her sables an opulent figure wooed by the march wind mr mainprice had fussed forward in person he bowed in his white apron swung a chair forward and then dodged behind the counter The shop was empty, and three melancholy assistants studied Mrs. Betty from behind pyramids of sweetmeats and packages of tea, for the face under the white tock had all the imperative fascination of smooth and confident beauty. Mrs. Steele drew out a little ivory memorandum-book, and glanced at it perfunctorily, before looking up into Mr. Mainprice's attentive face. He was a weak-eyed, damp-haired man, with a big nose and a loose, good-tempered mouth. A patch of red on either cheek seemed to suggest that the apicier cultivated an authoritative taste in port, sherry and Madeira. "'I want some jellies and soups, Mr. Mainprice.' "'Certainly, madam. There are a few poor people my husband attends. I want to help them with a few little delicacies.' Mrs. Betty's drawl was most confidently sympathetic, and Mr. Mainprice ducked approvingly behind the counter. "'What brand, madam? Lazenby's? Cotton Blackwell's? "'Oh, the best! What do you recommend?' "'Thank you, madam.' "'Let me see.' And Mrs. Betty's eyes wandered with an air of delighted innocence about the shop. "'I liked the glassed jellies best. Six, yes, six, and six tins of desiccated soup.' "'Certainly, madam. The large size?' "'Yes. Will you have them made up into different parcels? I will take them in the carriage.' certainly madam mr mainprice nodded sharply to the three melancholy assistants and then bent over the counter to scribble in his order-book very windy weather madam mrs betty glanced up brightly at the suave thin-whiskered face and smiled she had a great variety of smiles and mr mainprice was an intelligent person and a man who was not ashamed of wearing a white apron moreover he was an excellent patient "'the father of five tall and unhealthy daughters, "'and the sympathetic husband of a neurasthenic wife.' "'Terribly windy,' she agreed. "'This is a dear old house, but I suppose it is rather draughty. "'No, madam, no, we find it very comfortable. "'I have had double windows fitted to the upper rooms.' "'They make such a difference.' "'Such a difference, madam.' There was a short pause. Mr. Mainprice was a nervous man. He had a habit of sniffing, and of opening and shutting his order-book as though it was imperative for him to keep his hands occupied. "'Dr. Steele is very busy, madam?' "'Oh, very busy. So much influenza.' "'I am afraid, madam.' And Mr. Mainprice elongated himself over the counter with a waggish side-twist of the head. "'I am afraid we selfish people don't show Dr. Steele much mercy.' Mrs. Betty laughed. "'I believe you yourself have been particularly wicked this winter, Mr. Mainprice.' I must plead guilty madam you are quite well now i hope mr mainprice frowned and half shut one eye nearly well madam i ventured out last night without orders the primrose league concert now madam you have found me out mrs betty and the epicier regarded each other with a sympathetic sense of humour we were there mr mainprice and i was so annoyed because dr steel was called away just before your daughter sang "'Indeed, madam,' and Mr. Mainprice sniffed with nervous satisfaction. "'The best item on the programme! Such a sweet contralto and such musical feeling! I remember poor Mrs. Murchison used to sing some of the same songs. Of course, she never had your daughter's artistic instinct.' Mr. Mainprice coloured and looked coy. "'The girl has had first-class lessons, Mrs. Steele. I believe in having the best of everything.' i have been very fortunate madam and though i ought not to mention it money is no consideration the grocer straightened his back suddenly with a mild snigger of self-salutation money well spent mr mainprice is money invested madam exactly and a good education is an investment in these days two of the melancholy assistants were carrying the parcels to mrs betty's carriage she rose with a rustle of silks her rich fur jacket setting off her slim but sensuous figure. Mr. Mainprice dodged from behind the counter and preceded her to the door. "'If it will be any convenience, Mrs. Steele, we can deliver the parcels immediately.' "'Thank you. I want to see the people myself. I like to keep in touch with the poor, Mr. Mainprice.' The grocer's weak eyes honoured a ministering angel. "'Exactly, madam. Permit me.' He edged through the door with a nervous clearing of the throat, Blinked as the wind blew a cloud of dust across the road and escorted my lady Bountiful to her carriage. What address, madam? Thank you so much, Mr. Mainprice, the coachman knows. And Mr. Mainprice stood on the curb for fully ten seconds, watching Dr. Steele's brawn bear this most charming lady upon her round of Christian kindness and pity. It is wise in this world to cultivate a reputation for philanthropy though like the priestly dress it may be a mere sanctity of the surface. Few people are honest enough to be open egotists, and to attain our ends it is necessary to skilfully bribe our neighbours' prejudices. Though self-interest is the motive power that keeps the world from flagging, it is neither discreet nor cultured to blatantly acknowledge such a truth, for without a certain measure of hypocrisy life would be a sorry scramble that man should be taught to love his neighbour as himself is both admirable and inspiring and yet no one who respects his banking account could ever seriously accept so unbusinesslike a theory there was more shrewd honest and unflinching truth-telling in hobbes than in the vapourings of a flimsy sentimentalism now mrs betty had no more love for a washerwoman sick with a carbuncle on her neck than she had for an old and mildewed boot poverty and the inevitable sordidness thereof were more than distasteful to her and yet she was so far sound in her worldly philosophy as to dissemble her distaste for expediency's sake it is never foolish to be suspected of generosity and in roxton where the ladies counted one another's yearly record as the hats it was necessary to assume some sort of benignant attitude towards the heathen or the poor betty steel as the leading physician's wife recognised the power of judicious and moral self-advertisement. She had lived down her mischievous desire to shock the good people who paid her husband's pleasant bills. No doubt she derived some delicate satisfaction from playing the fair lady in her furs, and from conferring favours on her humbler neighbours. The sense of superiority is always pleasant. That man is a liar who describes himself as utterly indifferent to obloquy or favour. Mrs. Betty stopped at a florist shop on her way and bought three bundles of scilla flowers. The golden blooms made a kind of splendour beside her sable coat. Colonel Feverel, Roxton's most antique dandy, passed as she returned towards her brougham, and the brisk sweep of the soldier's hat saved her the trouble of remembering her mirror. At the top of one of the alleys leading to the river, Dr. Steele's wife disembarked upon her errand of mercy a small boy whipping a top on the narrow sidewalk served as a porter for the carrying of her jellies one or two greasy heads were poked out of the pigeon-holes of windows mrs betty demure and sweet as any dorcas knocked at the door of number five good day mrs ripstone an elderly woman in a faded blue flannel blouse had thrust the beak of a nose round the edge of the door good day ma'am a thin, hard-faced, offered no very fulsome welcome. How is your husband? Dr. Steele told me yesterday that he was a little better. Mrs. Ripstone's lethargic eyes rested for a moment on the small boy carrying the parcels. Mrs. Betty herself bore the golden flowers. Much obliged, ma'am. My husband is doing as well as can be expected. Will you step in? We ain't particular tidy. Mrs. Betty stepped in and sat down calmly on a very rickety chair. I have brought you a little soup and two glasses of jelly. Much obliged to you, ma'am. The two women looked curiously at each other. They were utterly unlike in any characteristic. Mrs. Betty, in her furs, looked like a Russian countess in the hovel of a peasant. The room was unconditionally dirty and smelled of burned fat. There was nothing to admire in it, nothing to provide the lady with a subject for enthusiasm. I'm glad your husband is better, Mrs. Ripstone thank you ma'am the woman in the blue blouse stood stolidly by the table mrs betty's words made no evident impression on her it was as though she regarded the visit as a necessary evil and was only persuaded to be polite by such tangible blessings as might accrue have you any children mrs ripstone stared ten ma'am her brevity was expressive you must be very busy i am that ma'am are they all grown up growed up yes well ma'am and the woman in the blue blouse gave a peculiar smile if you'll listen you'll hear the baby hammering a tin pot in the yard the reek of the burned fat began to prove too powerful for mrs betty's sensitive soul she and mrs ripstone seemed out of sympathy conversation languished the lady with all her cleverness was wholly at a loss what to say next Two minutes had passed when Dr. Steele's wife rose. She smiled one of her perfunctory smiles at the woman in the blue blouse and turned with a rustling petticoat towards the door. "'I hope your husband will like the soup, Mrs. Ripstone.' "'Thank you, ma'am.' "'Good afternoon.' "'Good afternoon, ma'am.' The woman watched Mrs. Betty to her carriage and then closed the door with an expression of rather sour relief. She turned to the flowers and parcels on the table. "'untied the string and examined the contents. "'Wonder what she left em for,' was Mrs. Ripstone's solitary and cynical remark. "'In her carriage Mrs. Betty was holding an enamelled scent-bottle to her nose. "'I wonder why they are so dirty and so reserved,' she thought. "'I don't think that woman was the least bit grateful. "'I don't like the poor. "'Anyway, I have done my duty.' The west was wreathed with the torn crimson of a wind-blown sky at sunset, when Mrs. Betty drove home from her essay in almsgiving. St. Antonia's Spire, a black and slender wedge, seemed to cleave the vastness of the flaming west. The tall elms about the church were very restless with the wailing of the wind. In Parker Steele's dining-room there was an air of warmth and luxury, a sense of deep shelter from the blustering melancholy of the dying day. The table was laid for tea, a silver kettle singing above the spirit lamp, a plate of hot cakes on the trivet before the piled-up fire. It was the hour of soft, slanting shadows and of the wayward, yet sleepy flickering of the flames. Betty swept into the room with the sensuous satisfaction of a cat. The thick turkey carpet muffled her footsteps like the moss of a forest ride. At the window, his figure outlined by the golden purple of a fading sky, She saw her husband standing motionless, his head bent forward over an outstretched hand. He appeared to be examining something closely in the twilight. She could see his keen, clear profile, intent, and a little stern. "'Parker! Parker, the cakes are burning!' Her husband turned with a start, taken unawares, like the hero of Wessex in a swineherd's hut. Betty Steele had glided towards the fire. "'Preoccupation! Thy name is man. "'Parker, quick, your handkerchief. "'The dish is as hot as—' "'Say something, do.' "'Before the glow of the fire, "'she noticed the irritable frown upon her husband's face. "'Most worried of men. "'What is the matter?' "'Matter? "'Fate cannot touch us. "'The cakes are saved. "'Misery, Parker. "'Quick, the kettle.' "'The silver spout was spouting hot water "'over Mrs. Betty's treasured Japanese tray. "'Her husband with a—' "'Damn the thing.' "'turned down the cap of the spirit-lamp with a spoon. "'What an infernal fool that girl Simons is!' "'Mrs. Betty drew a chair forward with her foot, "'reached for the tea-caddy, "'and glanced whimsically across the table at her much-grieved mate. "'The King did not try to shift the responsibility, Parker.' "'Dr. Steele sat down abruptly, "'with the air of a man in no mood for persiflage. "'What were you studying so intently?' i learning palmistry parker steel helped himself to one of the hot cakes oh nothing he said curtly his wife laughed what a retort to give a woman the physician shifted his chair really betty am i to go into a lengthy dissertation on every trifle because you happen to be inquisitive tell me the trifle and you shall have your tea i was looking at a chilblain on my finger what admirable bathos parker i might have taken you for hamlet's soliloquizing for the last time over ophelia's tokens oh quite possibly and he began to sip his tea you have forgotten the sugar what execrable memories you women have End of chapter twenty three